Hello, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you with us. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do at Office Hours, head over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and and all sorts of links about the show. Um, If you'd like to, you can use the QR code that will be appearing here. There it is. Snuck right up when I said it. Uh, To get more direct into the system, that allows you to pop your questions into the show. And if you're new to the show, we are run by your questions. That actually drives the entire agenda. Agenda today, not only your questions, but your votes. And if you want to get in a little deeper into the system and vote on the questions, you go through our Mukana system. Um, it's on the website. You'll be able to find a link to it. Once you're logged in there, you can actually watch through that system and vote on whether or not you want the questions, which questions you want to have gather the most votes. And uh, when they get a lot of votes, we talk about them earlier and for an extended period of time. So your votes do count here. Um, You can also, if you are on the QR system, just type in that URL. So you don't actually have to shoot it with your phone camera or something. You can just type it in and it'll take you to the immediate queue and put your questions in for today's show if something pops into your mind. Today in the second hour, we're talking about the Blackmagic Camera app, a tool that for many these days has started to replace their default camera app on their iPhones and gives them significantly more control over the camera array. Uh, I think Alex, who's just popped into the panel, has noted that he's been doing a lot of shooting, a lot of his mobile shooting through the Blackmagic cinema camera display or camera display. So we'll be hearing his thoughts on it today. Also, if you're a dedicated iPhoneography in any respect, today is your day in our second hour. All right, that's enough preamble. It's time for our first hour. TJ, what questions do we have in the virtual hopper today? Thank you, Bill. Coming in from Andy Korkendorfer from Vieira, Florida. First up, Andy asks, how long do you estimate before we have AI video TDs? Video compositions might be triggered by key phrases. Use office hours as a machine learning machine learning data source. It's interesting. We're going to start with Chris Fenwick today. Chris, what say you? Oops, it looks like Chris might be frozen. He said he was having some difficulties, and yeah, he's popped out. John Preto is our resident uh AI and ML pundit. So what say you, John? Let me tell you what Chris was about to say. It's okay, nev- never going to work. It's never going to work, those computers. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what Chris would have said. So the idea here is that you should be able to build a video by just saying, I want scene one, scene three, scene nine, and trim them all to head and tail, and then there's your video. It's done. That'll be interesting. Uh, Alex? I think it's more of what he's, I think he's asking more about live, and I think that, you know, because... Because the, you know, I think the the AI tools for editing are starting. To, we're starting to see those with things like Descript and other things, where they're or in Opus um, dot AI, where they're maybe not doing multi layered yet, but they're starting to get pretty good at what they're doing there. Um, a lot of it is an algorithm. Um, we don't think of it that way because we're a human clicking it. Um, I think that there is probably eighty percent of the work out there could probably re- be replaced by a computer in the next two or three years. Um, there's the top twenty percent. You still need to do it with a person because the, the problem is, is that a TD, you know, the, a TD does a lot more than just cut the show. So if you think of a, of a, of, I mean, cutting the show is a part of it, but a lot of times it's figuring out what's coming up next, figuring out how to, how to handle a bunch of things, figuring out oftentimes um, in smaller productions, the TD is also the director. So they're calling things out. They're calling people in, they're responding to problems. It, it would take a lot to, to replace them. The, the challenge is, is again, that, that, AI is really good at taking the bottom half or the bottom 80% of something. But then how do the people get good at it <laughs> to, to become the top 20% where the AI can't really do that yet? And I think that, 
you know, again, for an average show, I think most people would watch a show that was done with an AI editor and be like, oh, it looks pretty good. I mean, look, it, it's not, you know, particularly, but but I think that when, when things go wrong, the AI would hallucinate. <laughs> so start cutting to a bunch of things. Um, you, know, that's, you know, that's where you'd have trouble with it. Um, also, you know, it just won't be as creative. Um, but, I, but I do think that it's important that AI is able to do a better job than just basic um, active speaker. That's what we see here. Um, you know, and and we have the the opportunity we have is we have a lot more data inside of office hours for it to cut. And and what I'm trying to figure out how to do is really not how to have a computer take over for the TD, but have the TD really become more of an implicit director and have the computer really doing the cutting. So the computer, in, you know, but we we start to say, well, I I would like this kind of run of show, or I want you to go to this next, or you know, almost set our not speaking out loud, but have our TDs become something that is directing what they want and having the machine do the thing that they want to do. So they're not actually having to click through, but they're actually just kind of telling it where they want to go. Like next, we're, let's go to a, let's go to a, a wide, let's go to this, let's do this, let's do this and be able to tell the, the, the computer what to do, um, where it's not necessarily an active speaker, but it's also not someone actually pushing the buttons either. Hmm, interesting. Mitchell? Yeah, it's all fun and games until you ask the AI to do an L or a J cut. Oh, no, they do that really well. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, that's something that they do really well. Yeah, it's, it's, that's not a hard algorithm. It's the, well, how do they, uh, it's building, here's, here's what, here's what's hard. What, J cuts and L cuts are not hard for it because it can just it can just let someone ride and it can do that variably and we've built systems that aren't even ai that do that um, relatively relatively effectively you um the, the the hard part what makes it a great director a director is that they're thinking four or five shots ahead of time so they're going i'm going to go from i'm going to go from this close-up to this wide to this close-up back to the wide and over to the jib and they're getting everybody, they're telling everybody what they need to do so that, that, that you tell a story. It's not just cutting to who's talking. It is, it is telling a story with the cameras. I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you where people are going and how they're going to get there and how they got there and who's important and who's not important. That's what people are, with a, a great TD or a great director, is going to be thinking about telling that story with those cameras. And I don't think that, you know, that that will take a long time for AI to get good at. Cutting the cameras to a basic show like what we do, uh, you know, I don't think I think I don't think AI would do as good a job as a, as people that do it right now. Um, but I think that you could do an average show. Like if we decide we want to go twenty four seven, I don't know if I can get TDs twenty four seven, but we would want a machine to be able to do something that is reasonably good. <laughs> you know, that 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 gets us you know from one and then have this show still be what it is, and then have other shows that might be, you know, a little bit more mechanical. What does the AI do if you tell it to do something wrong? Like ready two, take two, three, no two. You, you, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it it, it may uh, may hallucinate, <laughs> but but you don't really want. But you're not really going ready to ready. To, like it's like go to this when this happens. Go to this when this happens. Go to this. You're you're you become less explicit and more of a you know tell. And and we've done you know so for instance in not in AI terms but uh, with Google Hangouts when we had an API. We, we basically started doing things like only pay attention to these three people. Like there's 10 people in the, in the, in the hangout, but only you don't, we could, what we call soft click. And so we would soft click three people. It will only cut between those three. It will ignore coughs and bangs and anything else that anybody else is doing. We could also adjust the attack. How long do, does someone have to talk before, this gets into your J-cut and L-cut, but how long does someone have to talk before they, before I cut to them? 
you know, so it'll just wait for them to start talking. So that way, if they don't, if they just say, uh-huh, it doesn't cut to them. It, they have to start actually making progress before it's going to go to them. Um, but it can also, you can add, add a randomizer. So sometimes it cuts quickly. Sometimes it, it, it lets them talk. Um, it depends. You can d- adjust that per person. So those are all things that you could do. The reality was is that when we got that system working, the final edit was better than the machine could do and better than the human could do because it was able its twitchiness of knowing understanding when people were talking was so much faster than a human that it was able to do things that a human couldn't do but the but it but it couldn't cut the show without our tweaking in i mean it couldn't cut it very well i mean it definitely cuts it zoom cuts something if we leave it leave it alone with active speaker but it would um so so that that's what we found is that is that the mixture between a human and a and a and a algorithm is lethal like it's just a really really powerful way to cut a show um, for this kind of show, um, but it's uh, but yeah. So there's still tools that we're, and that's where we're. We will sl- we we hope to soon have the tools that we need inside of Zoom to start replicating what we did there ten years ago. <laughs> so Zoom's almost there. So we're 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 getting close. Interesting discussion, and we'll have more of it. Andy, thank you for your question. Let's move to the next question from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Mike says, morning, everyone. What prep tips for the presenter does the panel recommend in making a smooth presentation when presenting with a live translator on stage? This is for an in-person event. Alex, start us off. Uh, so there's a couple things. One is, is if you're speaking, don't do anything different. Um, you can speak a little slower, but don't, don't look at the translator. Don't wait for them to stop talking. Their job is to keep up with you. Like that's what they do. You know, and so they, you know, so your job, you might speak a little slower than you normally speak to give them a little bit more time. But if you start responding back and forth or looking at what they're doing, it actually creates a, a bunch of lags that aren't, aren't effective. So generally, it's not to pay much attention to them um, in, that, in that sense. The only thing that you have to think about is if they're translating from people in the, in the room back to you, obviously, you want to make sure that you can hear them. Um, and then you have to decide whether they're going to whether you need the whole audience to hear the translation or not. So um, a lot of like, and that can be done in an in-ear. So you can have something like either a phonak or, or an electrosonic or, or something like that that is coming back up into your ear and someone's feeding you. If, if you're an English speaker in France, you don't need the French translation to be given back to the audience. Um, but if it's a mixed audience, then you may need to be able to have them, you know, you and, and that may be something that's broadcasted. So only the English folks put a translator on and they can hear that translation. So there's a bunch of different ways of managing that. There's some people that are that do it very physically. You know, if, if you're seated, if you're not walking around and if you're seated, you may have somebody. I mean, the the the, uh, the pope has someone whisper in there. <laughs> He's got so there's someone in Spanish over his uh, over his left shoulder that just whispers in his ear of, of you know what, what what people are saying in Spanish. And so so the um, so it just really depends on on how what you're most comfortable what your speaker is the most comfortable with as well. And what especially if they do it a lot, your speakers will know how they want to do it. If you haven't done it very often. I would recommend an in-ear with someone being able to talk into it. But for people translating you, the biggest mistake we see with translators is people start paying attention to the when the translator's done. Like, I have to slow down so the translators can keep up. They're used to it. They're in events at day in, day out where no one's paid attention to them. And they're just, they're just doing the translation, and that's where you want to be. CJ? Oops, you're muted, CJ.
It looks like he lost control temporarily. We're going to come right back to him after Mitchell. Mitchell, software button. I bet the software. Yeah, I agree switch. with. Uh, oh, no. I agree with Alex. Uh, I think you you need to uh, not disturb their groove. Uh, just do your thing, and they'll do their thing. Um, I learned that kind of uh, when we were doing Saturdays uh, when we were doing the uh, uh, we had the signers on, and uh, Laura was telling me, said, "Don't don't talk to them, Mitch. Just let them do their job." And that's the same with uh, somebody doing translation. Just uh, let them do their thing. Fair enough. I think CJ has this problem. And, and I just want to correct it. it no, we just, I just want to make sure we're, we the nomenclature is correct as people watch this. Um, it is interpretation is live interpretation. Translation is something that's done in post. So if you're translating something, you um, just, you know, so the nomenclature is in, if you're doing something live, whether it's text or speech or sign, it's interpretation, and if it's if something you're taking someone's text and you're turning it into another language, it's translation. CJ? Whoops, you're still off. We're not hearing you. I don't know what's happened, but somehow you've managed an air gap in the microphone to uh, – yep, he's raised his hands like it, for okay, some reason. Go to We're going to go to the next question. From Chester Sweeney, Las Vegas, Nevada, via the QR code. I know very little of DSLR cameras and how to operate. Is there something older, cheaper, and easier to start with under the three to $400 range? And TJ, you asked, uh, raised your hand on this, so dive in. Uh, yeah, I would uh, take a look at the used market. Um, there's a lot of older DSLR cameras, especially with the newer things coming out with the, the mirrorless and stuff. Um, so there'd be a lot of uh, older um, cameras available. Um, also, take uh, find your local camera store. There's got to be one in Las Vegas. Go in and say, hey, look, I, you know, I don't know a lot here. And the good camera stores will have people that are willing to spend time with you, to educate you, and you'll build a relationship with them. I've got a good local camera store in town that I've been shopping at for more than 20 years, and I walk in and the people know me by name now. So it, take a look at your local camera store. Yeah, although I think Chester might have been interested in moving to something like a camcorder rather than a DSLR just because the DSLR seemed too complex. Uh, but Mitchell, dive in. I think TJ's advice is good. Is uh, What you want to do is you want to get the most technology because it's a constantly moving target that you can get. And older does not necessarily translate, translate well if you want something that's uh, got new capabilities. For example, if you wanted that famous uh, Sony autofocus uh, working for you, which is not working right here. There it is. That, down, forget it. Um, anyhow, um, your best bet is to start with a, a low-end Sony like a ZV-1, uh, and if the $600 price tag breaks the bank, uh, try getting a rebuilt one because a lot of people are trading up. So I think if you, even if you went to B&H, you could probably get a ZV-1 uh, in that price range with a lens. So it's a good place to start. CJ? Well, we're still not hearing you. It may be frozen there. So, uh, Alex? Yeah, the um, you know, I will say that in that price range, the the camera that I see the most often are the Canon, I think the, the something 50, the R50 or C50. Um, it is a, uh, the used ones are pretty much tanks. You know, they're not going to have the same autofocus, um, but the, you see them pretty, they're a pretty popular camera. There was a lot of them sold. And so there's a lot of them on eBay. Um, so those are pretty um, pretty strong cameras as far as learning how to use a DSLR. I, I, I do think that that's that's I would probably look at the a used Canon and again the Canon. Uh, I can never remember all the nomenclatures. The 50D, I think 50D, I think is it's either D50 or the, Nikon puts the D at the front, 
Canon puts the D at the end. But anyway, but those are um, the, the the that would be a good camera, I think, to start with in that price range. If you if you want to do an SLR, I will admit I don't go out very often with an SLR anymore. I mean, I have one here because I'm I'm using it as a web camera, but but I don't. My daily shooter is still an iPhone at this point, and so I you know so think about what you're why you need a DSLR and, and what you're using it for. TJ wanted to hop back in. TJ. Yeah, just to your point, Bill, about um, something simpler that's not a DSLR. Um, aside from just your your cell phone, uh, Canon and Nikon and others do make um, what's called an all-in-one, where the lens is permanently affixed to the camera, gives you a little bit more creativity options, and you can set your exposure and uh, dial in certain values um, to explore with that. Again, um, check with your local camera store, because they'll have a lot of information and really help you out. Absolutely. And there's not one way to do this. There's lots of ways to do this. So good luck, Chester, in finding one that fits for you. Let's go to the next question. From Pedro G. Gonzalez III in Oklahoma City. Pedro says, have you seen the live stream Lakewood Church does every Sunday? Subtitles for music, translation to five-person panels, remotes, camera work is cherry pie, live stream quality is the whipped cream. <laughs> Alex, start us off. Have you seen this particular uh, service? I, I've seen it go by. Um, you know, um, yeah. So, so I definitely, definitely seen seen what uh, they, they do. This is Joel Olstein's um, uh, piece here, and this is. Uh, I, I will say, uh, a lot of churches. Uh, he's he's one of them. Um, there, the, there's there's probably four or five um, uh, ministers in the, or, or there's four or five pastors in the United States that that are um that are at that level you know, that are doing something at that level uh, as far as production goes um the but a lot of churches do it i was in um i was in zimbabwe <laughs> a couple years ago and one of the people i was teaching there was like hey would you like to come see our production of our church you know like we'd really love to get your input and i was like sure like i was expecting like a, i was expecting a church that had 80 people and some camcorders and, you know, like everyone's doing the best they can and everything else. And I walked, when I walked in, there was seating for 4,000. There was a jib, <laughs> two jibs actually, uh, like 40 some foot jib, like swinging across the top of the thing. They, they, I walked up, it was a full on television studio. This is in Zimbabwe. You know, like, like this is not like somewhere else. A lot of churches have a lot of production capacity, um, you know, and because it's a great way for them to extend past their, their walls, they're in, in many ways at way ahead of, of um, many, um, you know, the, the church, a lot of churches, especially the evangelistic churches, are way ahead of where corporations are or anything else as far as outreach and you know, managing that process. And so uh, you're, you're going to see... Um, yeah, Joel Olstein is one of them, um, but there's by again four or five that were really getting that level of production. It's interesting also that that a lot of churches, you know, I I've consulted with some churches around or houses of worship of all kinds. Um, one of the things I tell them is buy a lot of equipment because it's easier to get the it's easier to get the volunteers <laughs> because if you have if you have stuff that people feel like they just have to they're frustrated with all the time they're like ah you know like they they don't show up that often if, if you're putting up you know like the one of the house of worships that I went to had a CL5 and broadcast cameras and you know a, you know big old I mean they had a I think they had a, a um a Ross switcher I mean it was like it was all on and uh, and and I that's when I learned because I asked him. I said, "Why did you put so much into it? It's a pretty simple show." He's like, "It's a lot easier to get volunteers, <laughs> like, you know, like because everyone wants to train up." And a lot of people, a lot of us, that's how I learned to do audio. 
was at my at, at when I was growing up. I was twelve years old running the audio for uh, the church I went to. So so that's I, I think that that is a it's where where a lot of people get started. Guy, yeah, it's interesting to see how different denominations handle uh, reaching out uh, and and broadcasting, uh, especially during the pandemic. We saw a lot of folks that wanted to get PTZs and things like that. As I looked over uh, the Joel Steen one that was linked, and uh, also visiting in person a church in San Diego where they have uh, one main facility, but several remotes and going to the remote facility was even like a corporate sized building with childcare and just massive and the lights and the cameras and the mixer and even pro presenter being shown on the rear wall. So I would turn and I would look and, you know, all the lyrics are being sung on the rear wall, but here's the Joel Osteen one. You can see there's just, as Alex was saying, the, the big sweeping um, jib shots. Uh, you can see that all the performers have um, in-ear monitors there's, uh, yeah, look, the drummer's got uh, even quite the mic set up. And then going on to the main sermon here, we've got, uh, you know, lenses that can reach. These are Fujinon, like what you would see. Look at this, it's like a, uh, a stadium, you know, size. So the, we've got like 100x Fujinon lenses that can reach and hit that. So, yeah, this is quite the production at the highest level. But as Alex was saying, you can reach a lot of people. There's a lot of people in person here, but you're, your reach is just huge. Uh, he's got 3.3 million subscribers. This was 53,000 views, uh, and this was just streamed three days ago. So it's pretty amazing uh, the reach that folks can get these days with with this technology. I mean, it's it's a it's a blessing to be able to get out that far. I mean, my church is bland compared to this. We do a couple a year that are pretty big, but uh, like today and tomorrow, I'll be doing a church choir uh, where we mic'd up. Uh, more than 19 microphones on one stage yesterday. So it's a, just how deep do you want to get? But it, I, I do a lot for the learning. And, you know, that's one of the other nice things is, as Alex was saying, where we can get in there and learn. Like, I, I don't own a Behringer XR18, but I get to use one and get to see how professional EQs and things like that are just invaluable because he's got years. I mean, he's a touring musician. So he goes out there and he does all this, you know, fancy stuff that a Brian Maddox would do. And I get to learn from guys like that, even though I'm just helping for free. So it's one of those things where, you know, dive into your local church if you can and, and learn and see what, uh, what folks are doing. But yeah, thanks for sharing, uh, Pedro, this uh, live stream, because it is something to learn from and something to aspire to. Let's head to the next question. From Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Eric says, we want to put in some fixed LED lighting into a room with 100 seats for a two to three or three to five person panel discussion. These lights could be up to 35 feet back and fixed to 12 foot ceilings. How do you, how many do you recommend? Which brands do you recommend? Alex? Yeah, the, um, just kind of, you know, the, the, I guess the question is: Is what you what 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 do you need from the the hundred people that are in the in the room? You know, like do you need them to be? Or do you want to interact with them? So are you going to be lighting them? I mean, the first thing you want to do is think about some kind of grid up there. So you're going to figure out the you, you know having the lights. The further the lights get away get away from you, the harder it is to light. <laughs> so you're talking about some version of a Leco, and so you're going to have a lot of hard lights because you're going to as you pull them back, you're going to focus them more. You're going to have, you're going to have, they have to throw a lot further than, um, you know, than what, what they're there. So, and there are some digital versions of those or LED versions of those. Um, but you're really looking at theater style projection lighting at that point. Um, and so the, you know, you can definitely do that for panel discussions. You, you are going to want a grid. Um, you're not putting them somewhere unless you're, um, yeah, if you're doing fixed lighting, you know, think about the grid, think about how you're going to run power DMX, you know, um, to, to all those, those lights. Think about whether you just want to put movers in there. 
So one of the things is you get into the, gro- into the grid and you get a lot of fixed lights and that's going to be the, what it is for the show. In some cases, we see people just put a bunch of moving lights in and that way they, they can move. <laughs> you, you can have different looks for the show. Um, and and keep, keep an eye out when, I mean, I think the person that you want to look at when we're on, on the panel is when um, Tlaloc is on because, of course, this is what he does. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is his business. Um, and so he might be able to give you also some input as well. Uh, Guy. Yeah, just to throw a picture up uh, to show what Alex is talking about. These are the source for liposodial type lights. You'll notice that they have what's called internal barn doors. And with those barn doors, you can actually put um, uh, different patterns inside too if you want to cut the light. But you, So you have internal barn doors that can cut the light. So you can shape this light. So if this is a circle right here. You can actually cut from the top and make it like a, uh, a half moon uh, or from the sides or from the bottom. They're really cool. And they, uh, now, now they're really cool. These used to be really hot. So I, I had uh, the traditional ones where they That's were hot lights, but now you can get these in the LED. Professional voice over voice. Oops, we've got some leakage in here from something somebody's playing back. Uh, yeah, ellipsoidals uh, are one source. I, the, the problem that I've had with using entirely leakos or ellipsoidals is that it tends to be a hard edge beam. It cuts beautifully, so you can definitely keep it off of places you don't want it to spill. But I've never been completely happy, even if I diffuse the front end. The other option is to use a Fresnel-lensed light of some sort. Now, they don't project as far as the leakos, but the the nature of the physics of a Fresnel lens is that it spreads out and softens the light that's hitting the object. So I think it tends to make people look a little better. Um, you cannot throw as far. So you're talking about 35 feet back. I think you're right in the middle zone there. Um, they also are cuttable. You can use barn doors on the front end of an ellipsoidal or on, on a Fresnel lens light. And now that they've moved away, the one thing you want to stay completely away from is LED arrays. They are not good for this circumstance. So even though they're very efficient, they're just bad. You can't cut them. Instead of cutting, they end up looking like um, Venetian blinds with little stripes of lights. So anything with a cob or chip-on board light source in the instrument will be your best bet here. And I would probably go with some reasonably large Fresnels. That would be my kind of first instinct. Guy, you have some additional thoughts? Yeah, the Nanlite rep um, brought out some of these huge monsters, these uh, 720s, I believe they were. And these are also what we used in Noah's gig. And uh, we were able to throw these really nice uh, uh, soft boxes that were lanterns over the top. And they're really easy to, to attach. It's the Bowen's mount. So I would also look at these because not only can you put a Fresnel on there. So there, with the Bowen's mount, there's different attachments. So you, if you want a soft light and you want to move it closer, you can get the lantern. If you want to throw on a, a projection type light, so they call it the projector, you can put the projector on and that'll throw that light across the room 35 feet. So I'd also look at those in addition to, it just depends on how many and how wide of an area that you need to light up. But these things, we, when, we, when the rep brought it over, we were outside and we hooked it up and we were throwing light in, in sunlight. We were filling in shadows underneath people's chins and stuff. So pretty amazing uh, what you can get as opposed to what we used to have to use with HMIs and big power and generators. And now this just runs off of a 20 amp circuit. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, Bowens is interesting. It was That was one of the saddest things from the pandemic to me is right after the pandemic hit Bowens, which has been around for decades and decades. Um, 
went under and but the Bowens mount is still universal and even today the newer lighting manufacturers are going to that because as guy says there's an unbelievable universe of Bowens mount light modifiers and once you get into that system sky's the limit on terms of being able to shape and control the light let's move on to the next question Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira Florida wants to know how do you warm up for voiceover recordings Overemphasize Gina Lola Brigida? <laughs> Mitchell, take away on this. There's a great cultural reference for you. No, I, I've never used that particular one. I could tell you a couple things not to do first. Uh, back in the old radio days, you could always tell the DJ was getting ready to crack the mic when you hear him go, <clears throat> which is a very bad thing to do to your voice. Uh, the best thing to do, uh, make sure you know what you're eating before you go in. In fact, don't eat before you go in and read something or present something because the stuff tends to get clogged up in your throat. Like a couple of donuts can really be a problem. Best thing to do is uh, room temperature water. Um, and if you've got a little scratchy throat, um, some tea with a, with a little bit of honey in it will do wonders. Um, making sounds and things like that, it's up to you. You may have your own system of doing it. Um, I do a little bit of shouting uh, to, to clear it all out, but uh, don't do the old radio <clears throat> thing. That's bad. Alex? Uh, yeah. So one of the things I try to do is I try to do it in the morning. So if someone, you know, if, if someone, if when I do voiceovers for someone, I will do it before I talk to anyone else. Like I, uh, I still do some exercises. So it doesn't sound like, oh, I just, <laughs> I just woke up. But it also is, I'm usually the most relaxed in the morning, you know, from, you know, so it's usually, I feel like I, my voice is at its best. It gets worse over the day most of the time. So I try not to do things in the afternoon. Um, I will say that I, I do addiction, uh, which is, I can't, I don't know if I want to do it in front of the, um, I stick, I, I, I will tell you what I do. I'm not going to do it on the show because I just don't want to see a screen of me doing it. But I count to 10. I go one, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five. And I'll do that all the way to 10, except that I'll stick my tongue out as far as it will go and, and do that. And what it does is it, it forces my, my teeth to be apart. We used to do it when I was in theater. We used to do it as a, um, we used to put a cork in our mouth. So you put a cork in your mouth and um, or, or like a one inch cork in your mouth and you do that and it would actually force you to your 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 jaw will open up and you'll actually have better diction. And I'll do it oftentimes right before I do a read and sometimes I'll go back and refresh it. You'd be surprised at how much how sharp your words sound after you do that exercise. It's kind of like a magical exercise that I, you know, I learned from some theater director. And, and um, it's a, I don't do it every day. I don't do it now. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not going to do it on the show because it looks really silly. I just do it with my tongue because I don't have a cork. You know? So I probably should have a cork sitting around somewhere. Uh, it's just easier. And you'll, but you'll see me do it. You'll hear me do it. I usually won't put it on air. But if, you, if I'm doing a voiceover for you, you'll hear me do it somewhere um, where, I, where I do that. And, it, and if you talk before and then do that exercise and then talk afterwards, you'll hear the difference. CJ. Definitely. Uh, what I would worry about uh, is, like Mitch said, think about your diet. Don't be uh, don't be having any sugar or dairy or anything like that that's going to make your mouth get all dry. Uh, Got to stay hydrated. And then go, if you were in choir or chorus or something like that, and you have a, you know, where shall I go today? Somewhere in your back pocket, uh, whip it out because then you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to get those crackles at your high and your low end, and you feel all nice and voice dipped in butter, I think, was the term I've heard before on here. Mitchell Hill, come back. Um, I can tell you how I started. I used to fill our mouth with marbles. By, by the way, don't try this at home. And read copy. And we'd take one marble out 
and read another piece of copy and so on until we lost all our marbles. Oh, I, I should have known it was coming. Anyway, um, having done voice work for a long, long time, I will tell you something. The, the best advice I ever got was from my program director, Nat Stevens, at KOY Radio in Phoenix when I was just starting out as a youngster. And he said, your voice is muscles, just like anything else. So don't walk in having not done any voiceover for six months and expect your best performance. Read something out loud every day over and over again if you want to get into the voiceover side of things. Or if you just want to perform really well for one time, don't rely on doing it that day. Build up to it. And to this day, even after COVID, I hadn't done a lot of voiceover work and I started with the show here. And then the next thing you know, I'm on every day doing something and I can tell my voice is getting stronger. Those muscles are getting better and my articulation is getting better. If you go back to the first times I was on the show, even as somebody who's done voiceover for 50 years, essentially, I was still seeing improvement after I had taken time off in just getting my instrument back. And now things that were difficult for me to pronounce and go through are very much easier because I'm back in the groove and I'm doing it every day. So practice, practice, practice is kind of what it comes down to. Let's go to the next question. Via the QR code, Agent Ogden from San Francisco says, Bill says, once you stop paying for the software subscription, you lose full access to the content you created. Assuming Adobe, you lose access to edit, not view or use the content. Lisa shovel, dig a hole, then cancel. I still have a hole. Alex. Yeah, the um, uh, you do, but if you ever need to go back and do something with it, you don't. <laughs> That's a real bummer. Uh, so you know, being able, you know, having all your having all access to all your project files. I mean, I do, I do find that. I subscribe to Photoshop. I'll probably subscribe to Photoshop for the rest of my life. Um, you know, like it's just it's just something that I, I I still don't I don't use it as much as I used to. I'm I'm constantly working on it, but I can't haven't found that Pixelmator or Affinity has perfectly replaced what I need from Photoshop. Especially now with I will admit the new shot in the arm is that I use the generative AI in Photoshop at least two or three times a week. Like it's just a constant, oh, I need this a little wider. I need this a little higher. I need a little something over here. I need a little do whatever. I, I use it so often that I, it'd be very hard for me to give up until the other apps were able to do that. Um, but I will say that it does affect how I look. And I, and I use the substance, I'm a subscriber of the substance, all the substance tools because I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff in USDZ and they do some pretty good stuff there. Uh, for the other things like After Effects and Photoshop and uh, After Effects and Premiere and so on and so forth, it definitely the the subscription definitely affects my willingness to use the apps because I'm going to build a really complex um, I'm I'm building really complex content that I may need to go back and dig into and I and I look at it through the lens of I'm now stuck paying for this sub sub subscription or at least turning it back on just to get to those project files again. So I'm, you know, it really is like a, like a hook that I'm not willing to, as Bill has mentioned before, it's just a hook I'm not willing to put in. And, and part of it is because I think that Resolve is a superior product of Premiere. I, I will not say that I don't compare Premiere and Final Cut. I feel like Premiere and Final Cut are two different and Resolve and Final Cut are two different beasts. Like for me, Resolve and Final Cut sit in my desk and I use both of them almost equally. So I don't, they're two different tools for me. So I don't like compare them together. But I definitely repair, uh, compare Resolve to Premiere, um, and and Resolve is a superior product. Like it's it's it, you know like it just from a pure technical perspective, like it's a, people can be uh, have muscle memory in Premiere, 
but resolves a better product and it costs $300 once. You know, like it's, you know, so that's the, I think that's the hard part. Um, I don't understand the use of Premiere anymore. Like I just, you know, I think that, that Resolve about two versions ago passed Premiere and they've got five times more engineers. <laughs> so how you, how do we think this is going to go? Um, you know, so, so I, you know, like this is not going to, you know, the, the, I don't think, I don't think it's going to turn out well in that area. So Mitchell. And now for something completely different. Here's, here's the thing. Subscription is a bad word. Everybody reacts to it the same way. But in reality, and I am an Adobe guy, there's no doubt about it. I like their subscription. I like their uh, ecosystem. I have bought every year the brand new version of uh, After Effects, for example. I've probably spent at least six or seven hundred dollars a year or every year and a half when they came out with a point grade uh, upgrade. And the reality is, is you're spending less money with a subscription service. You just don't have that comfort of owning it um, like I do. I've got a cabinet in there that's full of everything uh, for After Effects since it was COSA. And I feel more comfortable having those things. But the reality is a subscription is not such a bad thing as far as price goes. And, um, yeah, Premiere, I, I mean, I used Premiere early, early days, and it was very clunky, and I left it way behind, and I got reintroduced to it, too, after I started uh, struggling with uh, Avid's uh, uh, codec issues, and um, went back to Premiere, and was like, wow, what happened here? This is so much better. So um, it's up to you to decide, but don't be afraid of the word subscription. Alex? I guess I'd go back to it. If you are... If you have a history of using Premiere and After Effects, um, and After Effects still, have, I still have delved into After Effects as needed. Um, the uh, but uh, if you have a history with those apps, it makes sense. If you're starting right now, you know I wouldn't <laughs> do that. I wouldn't start that subscription. Uh, you know, like like I just I don't think that this is the, you know three hundred dollars once is a, is a big deal for both both Final Cut or or, or and or. Uh, resolve, um, you know, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't get into that at this point. You know, like, I, I just don't think that they're, now Photoshop, again, and I still look at myself as using Photoshop as a historical thing. I've been using it since the early 90s. Um, I know how to do things there I, that I still can't, I can do muscle memory quickly on things that I can't do in the other apps. I'm not even saying the other apps can't do it. So I, I feel like I'm tied to my past. Um, but if I wasn't tied to my past, I would, I'd probably not, not go there. I, th I would respect that, Alex. You know, the thing is, you get older, that, that eventually will happen to you. Um, you have less room in your head to learn a new piece of uh, software. Like, well, I respect Resolve. I, I want to, I really want to get into it, but I'm not sure I want to jump into that whole thing. I, I invest in futures. So I look at an app and I, I don't look at where the app is. I don't look at where it was. I look at where it's going. And when you look at the trajectory, and I'm talking about speed, trajectory, you know, ma center of mass. Uh, Resolve is moving so fast. Now, again, that, that I just, as a layer-based editor, there's no other app that I would, if, you know, if you want to go fast, if you're like, again, I use Final Cut because I, I got to go, I got to do things quickly. So if I'm going to do something quickly, I'm going to go into Final Cut. I'm going to get it done. I use motion for all my motion graphics. Like I don't, I don't use After Effects for that. I use motion for all of my motion graphics um, at this point, um, unless someone sends me an After Effects file. Um, and then, uh, but, but if you, but if someone said, what should you, I, I like, the, I don't want to do it the final cut, you know, way. I want a layer based thing. Then it's resolve. <laughs> like at this point. And I didn't say that when we started the show, like I was like, but, and I, but I've gone through a bunch of shows. It's just that it's the investment of time and you're investing in a future of incredible amount of capacity, you know, at, 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 at black magic, you know, like that's not like they, they have so 
much more engineering focused on this than everybody else. And that's the, I'm not, I'm not talking about where I was. In fact, Resolve was still a learning process for me when I opened it up. But I just know that, that the trajectory is so much faster and, you know, um, than, than, I mean, if you look at, if you watch it when it opens, you look at all the new things they're adding, you know, and, and all the way across, I think it's, it's, a, it's very hard to, I mean, I get that people use Premiere and they use Premiere because they hope they work in Hollywood and Hollywood uses Premiere Avid. I get that. <laughs> but, but think about how long that's going to be important. Well, since I was name checked at the top of this, I will say that to me, it's just a matter of what do you consider intellectual property? If you think that the intellectual property is the finished product and that's what you own, then you're probably just fine with subscription. To me, as I sit there and edit, for me, my intellectual property are all the decisions, all the constructions I've made inside the editing tool. And if I stop paying for that tool, if I am blocked from access to all that stuff, I consider that an offense against my intellectual property. It's not the finished product. It's what I have created on my timelines that is my intellectual property. If I figured out a cool title or a way to solve an editing problem or something like that, and later on I want to go and grab that construction and use it someplace else, I should be able to. It's mine. And I'm uncomfortable in the extreme with any system that says, no, if you stop paying, we're blocking you from access to that. The other thing I'll just say quickly because it was brought up, um, I bought Final Cut when it first came out back 12 years ago. If I had been on subscription that entire time, not only would I be risking not having access to 10 years of work, but I would have paid a little bit over $10,000 to use the subscription software as opposed to the $299 I paid 10 years ago. So to me, those are compelling reasons why I'm just not comfortable in that world. But let's go move on. Next question. Matthew LeCount in Oakland. Zcam announced a 5K medium four-thirds global shutter cam in September, sub $4,000 shipping this month. Anyone interested? Uh, let's go with Guy Cochran. Guy. Yeah, you're seeing me on a Zcam E2 right now, so I'm in the in the Zcam family. I love I love their their back end. If, if you look at uh, what this camera is and where it uh, uh, goes in the lineup, you can look at what Red has for a, a global shutter camera, starting at uh, nine thousand nine hundred ninety five. So to be able to get this camera uh, for four thousand is pretty insane for. Um, this shoot that we were just on where we had an LED wall behind the person and you could see the scan lines coming down and it was just like, can you go into synchro scan and you can adjust it so that we don't make that go away. This is where things like global shutter start to really matter. But what I love is the the fine control. So when you're, you're in a camera that has uh, users that really use the the camera you can see that here you, you have access to be able to change things like the recording resolution so i can spit out uh, 4k i can adjust everything from the dynamic range jello audio uh, time lapse time code exposure white balance this is all in a web browser so so i can adjust all this from an ipad focus uh, image and this thing even has streaming where I could stream to SRT if I wanted to. Uh, so it's it's really robust for a small camera manufacturer to be able to have this kind of detail. Uh, I'm surprised they don't have more of a following. The people that uh, are in the Facebook group are like rabid fans. So I'm sure this camera is going to sell well. It's it's a great camera for the money for under 4000 bucks. I mean, I've been using this one every day for three years. and it's It's been amazing. Alex. STI. That's the problem. 
<laughs> like, like, like that's the like it's it's not the lack of SDI has us all like everyone looks at everyone that I work with looks at the eCam and they go, hey, that looks like an amazing camera, and then and then you realize there's no SDI output, and then everyone's like, okay, well, I can't do that. And I understand that I understand why they're doing it. I understand that they don't want to be constrained to the SDI formats and the and the and the you know there, there's a bunch of things there that that, that they're doing. But the decision, the reason that it doesn't go anywhere is because when it, 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 it is used a lot. Like I, so I, I've seen it used in a lot of places because of its specific tools and because of what it can do. And there are some people that love the fact that they can work on, a, on an Ethernet um, thing. But for large productions, you're asking them to shift an enormous number of things um, when every other camera they have, they can plug an SDI feed into. But that's, that's, that's what stops Zcam from it's a it's a it's a choice that they've made and it's definitely capped their market so far i think that they're betting into the future i think they could it could the future may come to them um you know through ethernet as we go to 2110 and we go to lots of other things but i think they've been a little ahead in that in that area and um you know they say that you know one step ahead you're a leader two steps ahead you're a martyr <laughs> you know, and so so they're 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 somewhere like one and a half steps um so so but i know that for for me the productions that we've done that we've looked at zcam it dies in the i don't have a pipeline to support it so that's that's the that's the the hard part is the ecosystem and everybody, don't forget your questions drive this show. So uh, if you have questions, we've got a good, robust group today. But remember, you can put in questions today. And if they get voted to the top, they will jump the line. It's all about the voting. So make sure that you continue to look through that. And we hope you'll join us on the back end in the Mukana process in the back, uh, where you can not only chat with other people who are watching the show, but also put your votes in uh, to vote other people's questions up and down. Let's go to the next question. Oh, I'm sorry, Guy, you had a... No, Let's go to the next question. Yeah. yeah. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, thoughts on the new OWC Key Express 1M2 USB 4 drive? It lacks Alex's Picatinny Rails, though. Picatinny Rails. I, I know that's an unusual term for me. Uh, Jason Bass, start us out. So when I saw this question, I reached out to a friend of the show, OWC CEO, uh, um, Larry O'Connell, and um, he said that they were built to take advantage of of the latest Apple Silicon Macs. So it's it's really full advantage of USB four. It's backwards compatible, um, but the prior ones only supported USB ten G, and this will be about a third the speed of what the Envoy Pro FX and SX delivered. He said it was a challenge to deliver the um, exceptional drive cooling without a fan and to seal it well. But um, it, it's basically just designed to be extremely portable and insanely fast, especially on Apple Silicon. I, don't you just love office hours? I mean, how, how many times can you ask a question in real time on the web and get a direct line <laughs> to the people who developed the software to answer the question at that level of detail? Alex, you had another thought on this? Yeah. Or is this about incredible, Picatinny Rails? I was going to say, no, 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 no. Incredible. Uh, it looks like an incredible value. I mean, it's it. I, I'm definitely like as a portable for portable editor, thirteen hundred bucks for eight terabytes um, that you can throw into into the front pocket of your. Uh, you know, it's kind of amazing. So, uh, I would. Uh, I think I'm hoping to test one. It's gonna be really good. Yeah, and boy, OWC has just been crushing it lately with all of their technology. So let's move on to the next question. Via the QR code, Ryan from Reno, Nevada says. When using the TriCaster TC1, is there a way to refresh or search for NDI sources without exiting the project and opening it again? We sometimes have trouble getting NDI sources to show up, and restarting is the only thing we have figured out. 
Ah, the TriCaster, one of the earliest NLE systems that has such a storied history and is still going today. Guy Cochran, do you have any... Uh, updates. Yeah, it sounds like an MDNS thing. Uh, if you can use um, NDI Access Manager to specifically uh, tell it where those sources are, and that way it's locked in there and you can add as many as you want. The way that we do it is we use a NDI Discovery Server, and that way you have one place that's basically saying, here's all the transmitters, here's all the receivers, and it just pops immediately. Otherwise, the MDNS information is having to go from switch to switch to switch and get populated, and sometimes it doesn't update fast. And so it's it's pulling that when you launch the app and it's trying to see what was there. So if, if you want it to be updated in real time, a discovery server is the best way to do that. And it's really lightweight. You just download, um, you could Google it. It's, it's really simple. You could put it on a $100 old PC and uh, it'll work fine. And that way it's just a directory. All it does, is it's just an IP address with a directory and it's just like an XML or CSV file that just says, this this is here, this is here, this source is here, and it just pops. So when you go to scan, it'll be there every single time. So if you want to cure that woe, uh, put on a discovery server on a simple PC, and that'll solve it. Excellent. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris says, so we've talked about NDI and Dante not being good neighbors on a network. And any suggestions on Cisco switches for best practice? Alex. Yeah, Netgear 4250. <laughs> There you yeah, go. Like the, 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 the Netgear line is the, is the one that has really been tuned for this. I mean, you can make any, uh, if you're using Cisco routers, I mean, we definitely do this with uh, Meraki systems. There's, there's a lot of uh, more industrial version of Cisco. You can build these. I mean, you can use a good professional Cisco router and build all the rules that you need to make sure that these networks work well together. If you want to have something that's turnkey, the, Net, the Netgear uh, solutions are the ones that are just like, I put it in and it, and it works. Um, so, so you just have to decide how much work, but um, any of the professional grade routers can administer these networks. Um, it's just that you need to know what you're doing. Guy? Yeah, if you were to go in and into one of these, this is a 4250, and I have three of them here. If you were to export to the profile and look at everything that's in there, all the little tweaks that they make, uh, IGMP snooping plus, all these things that uh, Netgear has specifically as a, as a switch company has said, hey, AV professionals, what do you need? And they went in there and they worked with engineering and they manufactured a device that makes it super easy. The, the amount of time, this is a $600 switcher, it'll cost you more in time uh, <laughs> to configure than, than uh, just buying the units. So I would say if you can... Uh, just segment the NDI to its own. So physically take a, a separate NIC and a separate cable and put it here. You can still have all your Cisco stuff just for all your routing and everything. You can still use Ubiquiti or Cisco, but then set up a specific switch with a separate NIC and you will have no problems with Dante or with, or with NDI. So that's my recommendation. There you go. Next question. Coming in via the QR code, Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. Is there a more effective method to ensure the security of connectors? And there's a link mm, to Lots of things. Yeah, Alex, dive in. Yeah, this is, this is what he's showing here. So this is <laughs> with gaff tape. And the answer is, in most cases, no. <laughs> that, that is the problem. There are some, um, there, there are basically some HDMI latches that you can get. So there are, um, there are companies that make latches that are, um, that are, 
that are part of the system that will basically swing up and grab onto the end of the into it, but it's usually built into the hardware. I don't know of a lot of ones you can add to your hardware that are going to do that. There might be one that sticks to the bottom of it that has a latch to it, um, but oftentimes uh, we are securing these, um, you know, with some version of what you showed there to things where we definitely don't want to pull them out. But this is also why a lot of us aren't using, you know, try to avoid HDMI in production. You know, like it's, you know, that's why we're using SDI is because it locks, but there are posilock, I think it's called posilock um, HDMI where the, the HDMI, and oftentimes the HDMI cables and the HDMI um, device has a way to either screw it in or, you know, screw in a, a sheath to pull it in, or they have a little latch that, ru- that grabs onto it. Um, but none of them are, are great solutions. Mitchell? Uh, another place to look, at, especially if you're going to USB, is our friends at OWC have these uh, real cool little Klingon devices that go in line, and there's a little hole in the top where a knurled knob can screw in and hold it there. So just as other things that can be secured that uh, normally can fall out. Yeah, there's one more company I'll just mention in passing. It's a company called Tether Tools. It does a lot with the DSLR shooters because they have this problem in spades. There's those connectors are so small on cameras and the people who shoot professionally need these. So they have a whole variety of little clips and and tether uh, strings and things like that that will ensure a connector does not pull out. It's worth investigating. I can't guarantee you that it'll be what exactly what you need. But there are companies who make uh, devices to try to avoid this problem. Mitch, you want to come back in on something Yeah, else? real quick. Uh, if you have like a mini HDMI like you do on this uh, uh, Sony camera, this little device here fixes the problem because it has a full-size uh, adjustment above that you can see that you can plug into. So in a sense, you're securing it by taking a flimsy HDMI mini and making it into a full-size one. And this little device here is a small rig you can get at any time. Yeah, and, and Mitch just reminded me about that. If you put your device at a cage of some kind, now you can't do that on rack mount stuff, but if you're looking to attach it to a mobile device of some kind, those cages provide multiple attachment points that can really make a big difference in security. Let's move on to the next question. Francis Frey in Cambridge, Massachusetts, via the QR code. A podcast with co-hosts live in a physical room together and the producer and guest in remote locations all connecting on Zoom co-hosts on their own laptops. Audio has been challenging due to feedback. Best practice advice for mixer and routing. Alex, help out. Yeah, so uh, I, I, you want to get everybody into the same mixer. <laughs> so having people join the Zoom, I'm assuming everyone's kind of recording on their own and maybe you have an open speaker there, that would cause all kinds of problems. Um, so the folks that, that are there need to be on one mixer and that can be uh, a variety of, you know, any interface that has mo- enough inputs for you to go in, get into Zoom and be also be able to record it. Um, you know, you could use something like an F3 or an F6 or a, or a, or a, obviously sound devices we use a lot as well. Um, but uh, there are, you know, there, but there's a lot of interfaces from Scarlet's to, to Universal Audio to, um, you know, a lot of different things that you could use to get them all in there. Um, and then you can either use software to record those or if I prefer to have them recorded on their own. Um, like when I do a podcast, I must always record to my remote mixer like a Mix Pre 3 or Mix Pre 6 or Scorpio or whatever. The Get them all into the same one. Um, make sure everybody's wearing headphones. <laughs> Find a way to get the Zoom out and fed back to them and that's through that interface. So you wanna be able to, so they can hear the person on the other side. Now what we do is we record, um, w- when we're doing it over Zoom, 
um, you know, for on the remote, we are using Zoom ISO and that way we can identify the person on the other end that we want to grab. We grab onto theirs and send it into, we talked about this yesterday, um, so that we can record that separately. So we record that ISO separately. We record the folks that are local separate. Everyone's got to have headphones. Everyone should share the same mixer in one computer, not have all their own laptops. Um, and you, you want to figure out what, how you're going to lay that out. But having everybody coming in on their own machines talking to them would be pretty uh, difficult to mix later. Um, you know, it's going to cause a lot because you're going to have a ton of crossover between them, between all those mics. So, you know, I would recommend something like, I mean, as little as an SM58, um, as much as uh, uh, SMB7s uh, or, or S7B, SM7Bs. <laughs> I always get those. Anyway, um, but those the, the, those are probably the most popular that you see, um, you know, going there. I use a lot of MB7s because they can go both ways. They can do USB or or um uh or or xlr so so those are the things to kind of think about but get everybody on headphones um get get that iso recorded um record those isos separately um you know in a in a recorder and i think you're gonna find that this a lot of us do this a lot i mean if you look at like uh many of our shows that's that's how we record them nice all right next question roscoe jones from key west florida via the qr code asks are we accepting shallow depth of field on TV because of two issues being fixed? One, managing the focus with better focus mechanisms. And two, producers or directors realizing that shallow depth of field is not a fix for a boring event. So now the shots are better and help the story. Alex, start us off. YouTube. YouTube is why we're going to shorter, shorter depth of field, in my opinion. Um, it's because YouTubers have been, you know, really embraced this whole thing. It all started with the five, the five D Mark II, and uh, people started shooting those for online. But YouTubers uh, shoot with incredibly depth, short depth of field because it, for a variety of reasons. One is that's the way that people liked it to look, but it also reduces production cost because as you shorten that depth of field, there's a lot less you have to worry about. Um, and so, uh, so the, uh, so I think that, and what's happened is, is that. TV just looks old. Like if you do deep depth of field um, at this point, the next generation looks at it. My kids, when they were six and eight years old, could immediately tell it was broadcast because of the deep, deep, deep depth of field. What they would say is that the background isn't blurry. So they knew that it was not re to them real content, <laughs> you know, like because they were because, you know, for, for their world. Um, and so so I think that the, that the culture has changed so much that I think that um, I look at two thirds inch chips like I don't know what oh, I don't know what to do with those. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't I don't shoot on two thirds I, unless we're doing a really big sporting event with long lenses. Um, you know, we don't shoot. I don't I under 75 feet. I'll never use a, anything smaller than Super 35. Guy. Yeah, our friend Greg Gibson purchased uh, multiple Sony FR7 PTZs with the uh, full-frame sensors. And the, the look that he's able to get on some of these, we have a little dis discussion in Discord going back and forth. And this was one of the more recent ones that he did with the, I think this was the 85 millimeter. And as, as you look at some of these shots, he was comparing them because there was other broadcasters in the room that had the traditional gear. And his shots are just magical. So again, it, it does give you that dated look if you're, like Alex was saying, with the deep depth of field. When you have something that looks cinematic, uh, it just adds that much more production value. And the last shoot that we were on uh, last week, we had uh, four FR7s, two FX6s, and FX9. And that is just magic. I mean, it looked amazing. So I think that that's the future is because these cameras are coming down to 12 grand with the lens, with the servo, servo lens. That's the 28 to 120, I believe it is. It's just magic. So we're going to see more and more of this because the autofocus has gotten so much better. As That was the hard part before was the autofocus for that child. Nobody wanted to use it. And it's too hard to try and manually focus some of this stuff. 
Yeah, other people have said it, but shallow depth of field for me was always a technique to get the audience to focus on what you wanted them to focus on. So if you can make the background uh, out of focus and keep the subject that you want to draw their eye in focus, it does that job really well. All right, we are almost at the top of the hour here. A couple of notes about what's coming up. Obviously, today we're going to be talking about the Blackmagic new uh, camera app and what it's good for, and we'll explore that a little bit. Tomorrow's show... uh, Uh, On Friday, we're streaming to multiple locations. That's the subject. We're not actually doing it. We're talking about doing it. How do you do this? Office Hours is going to begin streaming to more than one YouTube channel and eventually more than one platform. So we're going to be discussing the options about how to kind of work this out. Also, some things happening uh, in the future here. The next uh, one, uh, the Isadora Lab with Elwes and Spiro typically happens on Thursdays about an hour after the show finishes here. So 11 a.m. So look for to that. And in general, um, always know that when we're not here doing the official show, office hours uh, after hours is open and there's a robust discussion of all sorts of things there. So if you haven't been involved in the office hours part of the or the after hours part of the office hours community, I guess that's the best way to put it, then you should probably take a look at it. All right. We're at the top of the hour. We'll see you back on the other side. And, and Bill, I'm going to jump in. Run One thing just that we're starting to add to some of these announcements is we're starting to get to a point where we, you know, we used to have a problem where we didn't have enough questions for the first hour. And now we sent back like 15 questions uh, from, from it, you know, and a lot of this has to do with the QR code and other things like that. And people just asking more questions, producers asking more questions. We're running a little bit slower than we used to as well. Um, I just want to remind people that if we send your question back, you can push it in the next day. So it goes back to your little hamburger that's up in your upper right. Uh, that's your notes. Uh, we're sending that. We just want to make sure people know where those questions went. They didn't go in. They didn't go into the dumpster. Even if they're a QR code, they go back to QR and then they come back in. So they're, nothing's lost. So if we didn't get to your question, uh, you can make you know make sure to. Uh, uh, push that question forward again. We may start just keeping those and then pushing them back in the next day anyway. Um, but but those are things that are that we're kind of working on right now. Um, but we do have a new problem. And the other thing to underline for everyone is to make sure your know, voting now has become super important because we on any given day we're not going to get to the bottom of the of the of the questions. And so your votes matter more than they ever have before. Um, so as you look at questions getting you know submitted in the first hour, make sure to to vote on those questions because it it really does matter at this point because we can't get to all of them. All right. Note taken. So today, as promised, we're taking a closer look at the Blackmagic camera app for iOS, particularly for your iPhone. And it has become tremendously popular since it was reduced, released, released, released a couple of months ago. Um, When they first introduced this, it kind of created a big in the mobile video community. Uh, and then in the few months since then, it's gotten rave reviews for the depth and breadth of the control it allows you over your camera. And then so many things on the back end. So today we're going to be talking about that camera app. If you haven't seen it, it runs on an iPhone, one of the more modern iPhones, and it gives you an, a trend, an incredibly larger amount of detail. Here's the interface. I just have this running on my phone, and it's pointed at an iPad that I was just... Uh, I just went through the Motion Picture Museum with, you're probably seeing actually some reflections of my hands here, but basically the controls around the outside, as you can see, not only the the controls, but the display of data is substantially more robust than we've ever had in some kind.
kind of camera control app uh, on a phone before. Um, our friends at Luma Forge had uh, not Luma Forge. Who am I thinking of? Um, the app that has just been kind of oh, discontinued. Filmic. Yeah, there you go. Filmic Pro had a, a step up version from the the generic camera app and iPhone, but this thing has they obviously Blackmagic put a ton of work into this, and they've designed it. Uh, for people who want to take a more professional approach to iPhoneography, I guess is the best way to to put that. And they put obviously a lot of effort into it. It's a very robust program. And everybody I know who's been exploring it have been kind of gobsmacked by how much control. I know Alex has been doing a lot of work with the camera app. And so I'm hoping we can get him yeah. in on this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the... I mean, the big thing is, is that one of the things that's really interesting is that um, it is the outputs are, you know, there's a lot of things that they've added to it. So, for instance, this is what I look like vertical, but it's giving it's if I look at the clean feed, if I, it's going to give me a uh, the clean feed is still going to be horizontal. <laughs> it stays horizontal in, in this area so I can hold it vertically and get uh, a horizontal um, mix there. The but the the other thing is, is that as you start to look at these these features, I mean, being able to get to a point where you have, you know, an, you know, all of these options as far as how you're recording. Um, and I will say that it's not just that they're all there. They're a little easier to get to. I will say that I, I really liked Filmic Pro, but it was oftentimes chasing the menu was a little bit of a, of a process for me. Um, and so, but they really added almost everything that you can, you could possibly put in there, there you know, that, that this camera supports. Uh, flicker free uh, is always set to fifty because they're from Australia. So you always change it back to sixty. So anyway, so like if you're in Australia, you don't have to do that in Europe. But but I'm always like, oh, okay. Um, anyway, so it would be nice if it told it look. Oh, I'm not. I, I might look at my GPS and go, I'm not in Australia, so maybe I should uh, be something else. Um, but but again, um, the um, it, it basically exposes everything that you would possibly need for this. Now you can, some of these clips that I've shot here. Um, it also, you know, is taking advantage of it. And, and this is, I was shooting, and again, part of this takes advantage of the fact that it's of the camera. My, uh, my daughter was playing drums in this, in this one here, but, but the, um, uh, but this was shot, you know, the, 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 the thing you have to be careful of is, um, the, this was shot at, um, it's a 38 gig file. <laughs> like, you know, like when you download, when you shoot it, the ProRes HQ out of my phone, um, being able to shoot it from here. And I will say that I, the 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 tools in general are way um you know they're much easier to get to the other thing that i found is i almost immediately jumped over anytime i want to shoot any video that i care about i jumped out of the apple app and and so if, I, if i'm taking notes or capturing something really quickly i i go back into the apple app or if i need and i may be missing something on this phone if i need more than 60 frames a second so the the i couldn't find um and it, it may be here but I couldn't find the slow motion tools that that I that I have in in Final Cut, in, not in Final Cut, but in the Apple photo in the Apple Photos app, so um, or in the Apple Camera app. So I still go to for slow motion. I still tend to go to the Apple app. Um, but when I'm shooting video, video like I this is a video, it's up to sixty frames a second, and I want to shoot it and it matters. I immediately switch over to the, the and and a lot of that has to do with all of these tools. You know, I can grab the lens that I want to grab here. I can set my frame rate again. It maxes out at sixty, but I can very quickly fifty nine nine four. You know, these are all things that are much harder to get to. It's not that they're not all there, but they're much harder to get to. Um, being able to 
uh, set my ISO really quickly, my white balance. You know, these are all things that um, are not, it's not that they're, it's impossible to do on the Apple camera app or other apps. It's just that it's not as accessible. Um, and so so what you have is you have these, these bits here, you have your stabilization, you have your, um, uh, you know, this is, you know, what, what kind of zoom you're going to have, uh, what you're going to jump into. Here's, again, this is the kind of stuff that I want to see when I'm actually shooting something. So I'm in production and I want to see this. And I wonder, let's see if I turn it here so you can see it here. Um, so now I'm able to, um, I'm able to um, slate, you know, slate for the next clip. I have the lens, uh, what, what lens data, real scene, take. These are all things that are being inserted into it, um, you know, as, as you work. And so it is a, um, and I, and I, and I, I would say that the, this is not, um, you know, this isn't, uh, uh, this, I don't know everything about this app yet, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. But what I will say is that you get very quickly, like this is the future. Now I haven't gone into the black magic cloud yet. Um, so that's still kind of a, uh, um, that's still something that, that I have to have to kind of dig into, but I will say that I, it's something that I want to experiment with in our group is really playing with the Blackmagic cloud and playing with those uploads. It doesn't have to be just the Blackmagic cloud. It can upload to other cloud services. Um, I haven't tried that yet. Um, but being able to fire off stuff when it comes to like news gathering and so on and so forth, being able to have your phone automatically just pushing stuff up as you're recording is something that I am excited about. I haven't gotten to be able to test yet. Um, but I think that it's a it's a pretty um, pretty interesting puzzle. But it very quickly, I, I will say that the moment I opened it up, I just knew that film, Filmic was in big trouble. Like it was the first day. Yeah, when I, as soon as I opened up, I was like, this app for free on an iPhone and it's done. Like it's, you know, like it's, because it, it had everything that I, that I was using Filmic for um, and more. And then it also, you know, I knew that, you know, Blackmagic is probably going to keep on developing it. Um, you know, the, you know, but I think that it's a really, um, you know, it's an interesting model. Uh, so I, and I think that there's other places they can go with it. I think that, streaming from it could be really interesting if you think about you know uh, and i have no information about this i'm just making stuff up but you know what i started thinking about as well this camera could be tied back into a switcher um, and get data back from the switcher you know so it could be shaded and so on and so forth you turn your iphone into something like that it could also do srt um to the cloud <laughs> you know and be sending those kinds of things out those are all things that are not in the phone right now but you can see that you know Blackmagic is already doing that in other places. And usually, when you see Blackmagic doing something in other places, cross pollination happens at some point. Um, and, and then uh, again, being able to open this up in a um, you know, open this up in, in in Resolve and be able to have all that data is it's pretty useful. Yeah, I, it's been interesting to me because I've been back and forth. I've used this a few times. Uh, I tend to use uh, Apple's camera app a little more only because, for one thing, I I, I leave my phone in HDR mode on the camera app all the time. And the workflow for running HDR back into Final Cut is just really smooth and easy to do. But every time I look at this, I realize that the future of finer control over this is probably going in this direction. And and good. I know I have seen watching the panel view here that some of our other uh, panelists have uh, these up and kind of ready to go. A lot of us are, are at least have this into the system. System. So, CJ, you were one of the people who had the camera app up and the screen that I saw. Uh, what's been your experience since you decided to use it? One of my absolute favorite uses for this is the fact that when you choose in the settings for the monitor settings, when you choose HDMI out, 
as a clean feed. It also makes it a clean feed for AirPlay. So when you uh, are in the camera oh, app nice. and you go to camera, let me get out of my slate here, it's the clean feed that ends up going over to uh, AirPlay. Of course, I canceled my AirPlay now, so that doesn't work. Um, so great demo. But uh, if you want, you also have the option to, in that mirror, you can, instead of saying clean feed, you can also say show me an exact mirror of my display if you're trying to share the display someone, or you can have it have all of the information about what's my shutter speed, what's my ISO, what's my frame rate, what's my color temperature, et cetera, kind of surround it like you would in a traditional display. So if you're trying to do some sort of remote uh, viewing just as you're getting framing set up, being able to just airplay that to any Apple TV or to any Mac that's close by without needing a Wi-Fi connection is pretty powerful if you're doing something on a super shoestring budget and you're just trying to get everybody with eyes on the same thing. Absolutely. TJ, what are your th experiences? Well, there is an option to, uh, if you want to turn the camera um, into vertical video, there is an option to allow vertical video. I, I think vertical video is evil, however, um, but it's it's there if you want to do it. And um, my son actually shot a promo. Um, he had a, like a couple minute promo that he um, a client wanted to use their uh, iPhone wanted to shoot it on an iPhone. So he actually used this app to shoot that with, shot it in log, recorded it um, to an external hard drive. And he said it worked fantastic. So he actually did use this for that purpose. Yeah, I have to admit, in my first experiments with just shooting an iPhone, uh, the quality coming out of you know, these iPhones, they're, they're t tossing tons of money into the camera sections, and they really do perform marvelously compared to what I, uh, any phone camera used to do five or ten years ago. I mean, it's just night and day. And I think there's going to be nothing but increasing progress in that realm. And when you're inside one of these things, and obviously this is this is this has been interesting to me as just an observer. There used to be a certain amount of tension between Apple and Blackmagic, and I think there is on some things. You know, we still don't have. Um, ProRes RAW in some of the Blackmagic tools, and Blackmagic RAW is kind of a different beast. And so I know there are areas where there's tension, but in the area of development and an App Store app like the Blackmagic camera app, there's obviously been a lot of cross-pollinization and, and talking between the engineering teams because everything about this app from the day it was released has seemed to be solid as a rock I don't know where everybody else's experience is the same. I've never had a lockup. I've never had a hang-up. Everything just seems to work as designed. So it is a beautifully coded and well-operating app that does give you a lot of capabilities you didn't have before. And if your workflow, you know, I'm just starting to, to feel the tug of more exploration into this workflow because it feels a little bit like the future of uh, not just shooting, but the whole content pipeline from getting an idea to being able to execute it with less cumbersome tools and yet well, really well, and then do the editing uh, close up on lightweight tools again. I mean, it used to be I had to have desktop level computers to do serious editing. And now laptops, particularly now on the Apple side with the M series, but I'm sure the PC side has has robust tools that'll do the same thing. It's just gotten faster and better and easier. And I think it's going to go the same way. And then to be able to pop them up to the web so that you can have access to a global audience kind of all inside a lightweight device like a phone, she's just stunning in a way. Alex, you had some more thoughts too. Yeah. The only thing I, I was also going to say is that the, um, uh, that 
the thing that blew me away is that using the tilt uh, focus control that was that was attached to the camera and you realize that that they're building hooks for that and that you know and remember this is the app that apple shot the the keynote with you know this is what they used and they have it tied in and again the difference that we've seen, that we didn't see and, and again there were many people at Filmic that were friends of ours. There were, they were, I feel like the move to, this wasn't their choice, but the move to subscription was probably a fundamental error on their end that left them in a in an exposed position um, for, for this process because, you know, I think a lot of people were not happy about that and just kind of putting up with it. So I think it, it created a, um, a potential energy there that they probably didn't want to have. And when no one else was on the market, it didn't matter. But, but still... Filmic largely came from a company that hadn't made cameras before. The difference here is that Blackmagic comes from, we've done cameras for the last decade. We know what you want in a professional camera. And when most so most of the software development is not done by people who are who have done that part. And so that it's what they thought of would be good and it's what they talk to people about, but they haven't had to engineer something for 10 years and then push it into, a, into it. So they're, it's a much deeper app. I mean, I will say, if you're, this is not for the, the, the black magic camera is not for the faint at heart. <laughs> like if you're not ready to sit down, um, my, the first five or six clips I shot were completely useless. Like I just, I just hadn't got it right. I hadn't got the settings right. I, I was like, whoa, this is like way more. And now that I'm starting to get used to the interface and I, you know, and I also have to, you saw there's only a couple clips in there. I have to delete them all the time. I have to pull them off all the time and put them somewhere because I'm now generating, you know, 50 terror, oh, I'm sorry, 50 gigs a shot at a, every time I open up the camera, not, not just, um, I'm not making little files anymore. So, so it is a professional level camera. I do think that we're going to see more and more integration with third party and exter external controls. And so being able to, I was kind of surprised that Blackmagic doesn't have, you know, tie their own controls into, <laughs> into that, given that they tie Tiltas in. Maybe they do. I don't, I just didn't see it. But I was like, they have their own, you know, like they could, they could do that. So, um, so I think that, um, I think that one thing that I'd be really interested to see is if, you know, we see, we've seen small rig, I'm getting one of those, I finally broke down. I'm just getting one of the generalized small rig <laughs> setups rather than the, um, the special one for my phone, because I might get both, but the, the hard part is, is that the, the generalized one means that I can put any phone in there that I need to, uh, as opposed to continually, but I buy new ones every single time. I've got piles of small rig, um, rigs anyway. So, um, so anyway, I think that just like small rigs doing that, I think that one of the things we're probably going to see in the next two or three months, definitely by NAB, someone's going to build a rig that you can slide into that is basically the breakout box that we would normally see. So that's what you see people kind of gluing on to the outside of the camera right now is like, how do I take a USB-C and throw it into something that's going to give me some other USB outputs, give me an Ethernet, give me a HDMI, give me all of those things. Those little um, uh, hubs are something that the, you, you eventually want to be in a camera rig. You know, like it's going to be like a, you know, you're going to put it in and it maybe it'll either be Tilta or it'll be a small rig or it'll be somebody is going to build one that the hub is built into the camera holder. You know, so you're going to put your camera in and you're going to, and, and that hub is going to snap into the bottom of that USB-C and then you're going to have, I mean, it could be Limo connectors and all kinds of other <laughs> like things sticking out the outside edge, you know, um, uh, D-taps. And I, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to build something in there that lets you just kind of hook it in and then have all of your engineering come out of the camera, which I think is 
both absurd and wonderful all at the same time. <laughs> that, that, that you know that we're going to do this with our cameras, um, but I will say that you know the again the the one thing to to look at here is the power that being able to go into a location where people might be sensitive to cameras and being able to uh, um, take broadcast quality footage, and I would say broadcast quality loosely. I mean, it's not going to. I'm. I, this is not replacing a giant film camera or a giant news camera, but you can definitely shoot footage that can hold its own, and you have for a while on an iPhone. And this just gives you the control to do it. And, and it's, again, done by a real production company with a real back end. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a much different um, approach to what's happening. Also, I think that the young people who are coming up in the business are so fluid with these things. I'm, I'm remembering back to moments when I was uh, hanging out with my son's friends and, you know, trying to put a name or something like that in a database in my computer. And one of the young ladies reached out and said, can I just have it? And in, in two seconds had typed all the information in there and handed it back to me. And I was going, you know, I'm getting behind because that's what they're growing up with. They were used to phone interface for most of their IO in their life. And so not exploring this new technology is going to get to the point where I think people can just zip past you uh, because you're not keeping up. And this is kind of uh, the amount of capabilities, the delta between this iPhone rig and $10,000, $15,000, $30,000 cameras I used 30 years ago there's no delta. These are better cameras. I get better pictures than the SD cameras, even at those kind of prices that I was using for using when I started my career. So it's something I think everybody has to pay attention to. And I think unless you're a DP on major film sets, and even then I think you should keep half an eye on this stuff. Uh, this is the future. CJ, you had a thought. I think back to when I was you know, got the a first my first real camera in my hands, and I had the knobs to play with everything. I'm going to play with the white balance. I'm going to play with the shutter speed. I'm going to play with the ISO and see what the image does. The fact that you are now on a phone, right? I just put the information overlay right on top of the phone. This screen is so big that I can just I can just tap on every single thing that I could tweak, and just quickly say, "Oh, what if I change the ISO? What if I change the white balance? What if I change the tint?" What if I tapped on the audio meters and saw what they were doing? The ability to explore and the ability to learn with something like this is just so stinking cool that I'm just, I'm really excited to see what the people who grow up with this kind of technology and have this tool on their phone for free, like their ability to learn creatively is just tremendous. Absolutely. We were talking at the Creative Summit. I was talking with one of the young YouTubers there, and they just think differently. They're, they're absolutely unafraid to go out into the world and create content on the fly, and it's because they've grown up with tools exactly like this. They're, they're, you know, It hasn't been, I've got to arrange a crew and arrange a camera. It's I've got to go out and do something now. Different attitude, and boy, it's, it's pretty exciting, I think. Um, let's get to some of our questions. Uh, TJ, what do we got? From Jack Ruppel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack says, how might the 17.2 spatial video be integrated into the Blackmagic Designs app? 
And Alex has more experience in this than anybody else I know. Alex, what uh, do you think? I don't have that. I don't have very much experience yet. But but the uh, um, you know the spatial audio, the spatial video is something the way it's the way it's designed um, for how it's going to work with the iPhone and the pipeline is that it really feels like it's just it's using the spatial cameras. You have to be in landscape mode, <clears throat> so because those two cameras have to be lined up, and it's. Um, it's designed to give you a video file that really just feels like a 2D file. It's just going to express itself in 3D when it when it needs to. And so when it gets to the Vision Pro, it, it, so it, it, the way it compacts it, um, there shouldn't be any reason why, I don't think that the camera handles it right now, but there shouldn't be any reason why it won't do it with the phone. It won't show it to you. There won't be anything to see unless you have a Vision Pro. But what you're going to be able to do is, and there are people trying to hack this, this um, format so that they can get it back out to two discrete eyes, and that hasn't happened, I don't think yet. Um, but there should be no reason why I can't say I want to shoot spatial video and it's just going to shoot spatial video um, with this process. And so I think that that's coming. Um, the the new, I think, as of 17.2, the new, the phone is capable of doing it. Um, so it, it the uh, uh, Apple's uh, camera app will do it. You have to set it. I think it's limited to 1080p. Um, but the uh, but it shouldn't be a problem for it to add spatial. It may turn off a bunch of options because you don't you can't do those things in spatial. Um, but it should be able to do it, and it's going to be really interesting. I I can't imagine they're not going to take advantage of that opportunity. But it really is the spatial is really designed to not be complicated for the camera manufacturer or the camera uh, software writer, um, in the sense that it the the app just simply cap captures it as a video. It will look like a video when you open it in Final Cut or Anything else that supports the spatial, um, uh, I think Final Cut will be the first one, but anything that supports spatial, it'll be 2D. And then when you cut it, the goal, the goal is that it can travel through all of that without being uh, knocked out of out of uh, timing. So so it should be it should it should work well. I'm still waiting for somebody to come up with a little app that they hack apart in their basement that moves the left and right into blue and red and you take your cardboard glasses from 1953 (laughs) have depth (laughs) which works really well actually you know i have uh i have a meta shape uh we'll do red red blue and um and i still do it for a little test that i that i work on is i'll do a red blue um uh thing with it if i'm i I built to do spatial i don't i'll see if i can find a picture of it i actually printed a holder for two iphones that you could plug into it so that they would shoot stereo. Like it would be, you know, you had to hit, hit and go and then snap in front of it so you could, <laughs> you could resync the eyes. But as a test, I actually built one and take one phone and then flip the other phone upside down so that I could get them into interocular distance and lined up with each other vertically. And so it, I'll, I'll see if I can find a picture of it, but it, it worked, you know, like it, it was, you know, oh, and, it. um, and, uh, it was so funny. I, um, uh, I sent it to somebody and they were, they, um, because they sent it and saying, hey, take a look at this. And they were like, you're actually shooting this with two iPhones, aren't you? Like, like, like as soon as they saw the footage, they were like, they, they actually realized that I was, it, this is not like a fake. I am actually, um, you know, I have two discrete iPhones capturing video. So uh, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see you know, how that goes. But I, I still red, red imagine, blue. I still remember being a preteen at Disneyland and I bought a Viewmaster in 3D with a set of glasses. And to there's a C. Uh, there wants Cinderella's to be a Viewmaster. <laughs> I, I think that the, the you have to ship the the Vision Pro with a Viewmaster. I still have them. Oh, there you go. My red blues. Those like, are fancy. I, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, these are nice and they're not paper. They're like real ones. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I will say that when I use my Meta, if I want to look at something in Meta Shape and I put, turn these on, it looks amazing. Like it, it wow. really, you know, it's still it's still good. 
<laughs> your brain still gets fooled, and you well, think that you can still there. you can just remember that you can publish red green to uh, red blue to uh, YouTube, and all someone needs is the glasses, and they can look at it. I think we did an early <laughs> office hours where we a bunch of us got. Viewed yeah, I remember things. all of us wearing the little yeah. cardboard glasses. Very cool. All right, let's go on to the next question. Aaron Giancarli from Flagstaff, Arizona says, is there any indication that the Blackmagic app may become a camera that can be connected to the television studio switcher via the internet, like some of the higher end cameras are able to do? Alex? Yes. <laughs> I, think that, I think that that's almost a given. I, I wouldn't say it's a given, but I think that it's a highly probable thing that you would be able that that black magic is going to have some way for these these cam the your phones to be tied back into the switcher and there's no reason why the switcher shouldn't be able to actually uh talk to the camera you should be able to shade the camera um you know shade the camera app in the phone with the switcher there's i i'd be blown away if within the next year we don't get that you know i think that's that's just a that's almost an automatic for them so so i i I think so. I think I would say. Wonder yes. if there's a new item that might come out that has a little camera button on it that you could, or phone button on it. You could just, I, I just attach the phone. The the, yeah. the 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 ones that have uh, Ethernet inputs. It's an Ethernet to a. You could literally have Ethernet to uh, USB C. So an Ethernet to USB C adapter. I mean, you can, I have cables that do that. So literally have a a USB into the phone and a. Um, an HD or even an HDMI could talk back and forth through the HDMI cable, which is what it does now. You know, back to the to our, some of our cameras, but you could have it go into the Ethernet connection and then and then just you you take over that that camera and start shading it. There's no reason why it couldn't have that two way communication with your phone. Well, particularly now the USB C is on the phone, so you got a lot of lot more bandwidth. I mean, there's there's so many possibilities there of, of even have phones be able to deliver back over to the internet via SRT or bridge or whatever, <clears throat> deliver those back to the switcher, and make that work. It, it should it should absolutely be possible. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael says, "Do you think we'll see the app be shadable from an ATEM?" Uh, surprisingly, yeah. we just chatted about that. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> you so. know, that's the, the great advantage. I know that people say that, that comp competition between different manufacturers often leads to advances. But when you have both tool sets under the same corporate governance, so to speak, they really, the engineering teams inside can give you a lot of amazing things. CJ, what are your thoughts? In the meantime, uh, you can import LUTs right on to the phone. So if you shoot something in Apple Log, take it into Resolve and get to a look that you like or a starting point, you can then import that LUT directly into uh, the Blackmagic app. So you can, while you can't shade with the camera, you're not limited to the controls that are physically on your phone. Okay, nice. Let's go to the next question. Aaron Giancarlo from Flagstaff, Arizona. Has anybody used the Blackmagic app for a collaboration with Blackmagic Cloud? I have not heard of anybody that I know doing it yet. Alex, have you done, uh, nope. you said not experimenting. No, we, we definitely are talking about experimenting with that, and we definitely haven't done it yet, but it is something that's on our list of, of things to do with the cloud. But I think that that is a, so the, what should be possible that we haven't tested yet for this camera is you should be able to um, be shooting footage and having upload and coming straight into Resolve as you're, as you're shooting. And so if you think about that for, from a news gathering perspective or social oh. media, imagine having your, you know, you're shooting at a location and your editor is at a hotel room, they're at home, they're in some other country, some other continent, 
they can be sitting there cutting this whole show together and you're just simply shooting that stuff and it's automatically pushing it. Um, I think it's going to be really powerful. I wonder if, you know, if famously Apple is still using the Qualcomm modems. They've had some difficulty in terms of the technology, but I'm wondering if they're re-architecting their modem systems. They've been trying for years and they're, they're I know, not quite they there have. yet. But, but, you know, they've got unlimited resources and engineering talent to spare. So at some point when something comes out and they're building their own modem sections in there, you wonder if some of these things that we're talking well, this, about. This stuff is possible now. They don't, Apple doesn't need to do anything to make that work. I'm just wondering whether there are additional capabilities in terms of extra speed for things like an upload of live video into their cloud system that might be enhanced. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Guy, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, digging into this a little bit. Uh, when we went to Zoomtopia, Blackmagic happened to be there. And so I had some questions for the, the rep. And one of them was, can you pause the upload um, so that it doesn't take over your cell phone while you're while you're doing other things. So in the settings there, there is a, uh, a setting where you can say uh, either auto upload. So that way it, it does it uh, just in the background. And if you're on cellular, you can say, wait until I get to uh, Wi-Fi. So be careful about having these set. Uh, I don't remember what the defaults are because I changed mine. But then once you go to uh, media, when something's uploaded to the cloud, it'll say, um, this little, it'll have this little checkbox here. And uh, hey, that's David Brady. Um, Dave Brady was there as I was asking the question to the to the rep. Uh, so we, we were able to upload uh, a clip to um, the cloud. And then in the cloud, it shows um, in your, um, let's see if you guys are seeing this now. This is- You are seeing story. your screen. We're seeing what, you, what you're pushing. Yeah, I'm, I'm switching over to a different, uh, let's see, camera two. Uh, yeah, that's uh, no, wrong one. Camera three. All right, and let me cut to this one. So then in the cloud, you'll see the camera uploads, and then those clips will appear. But you'll notice that the other one that I had hasn't uploaded yet because I just shot this one. So if I wanted to upload this one now, I could click on this one. You see that little button there, and I can click upload, and it'll say upload to private storage. You click upload, and off it goes. So that one should appear now here on the other side in a minute. Go back to. So that's just keeping the upload bandwidth uh, debt on the phone down yeah, while the you're shooting that I it and allowing you to push it to yeah, later. I haven't done it yet, but there is in here now there's the multiple usable user collaboration. And then you'll have the media pool, which when you uh, sync it up to your, to, to your cloud, you should be able to see those same clips that are, that are here in your camera uploads. So that one just uploaded from December 7th. So that's this one now. And then there is a little download button here so I could download it. But what I haven't done yet is figured out how to get these. So that just downloaded locally. But also uh, what I want to get it doing is going directly into that project and then opening up that project in Resolve. So I, I'm, I'm getting there. I mean, some of, the, some of these things, you know, it just takes, just takes time for us to, to beat on it. And it's, it's all new and fascinating, though, because when I first saw it with Frame.io, I interviewed um, Michael Cioni when he was at uh, Adobe. And I, I mean, it, it was big money because you needed a Teradek, and that was like 2000 bucks. And then we had a Sound Devices 888 to upload the audio, and that was like 10, 
somewhere six grand. So, I mean, all this stuff was very expensive. So I'm excited to see this come down to the masses and Black Magic's just doing a great job. I mean, it is $5 a month if you want to get libraries. So that was the other thing I had to run and go get my credit card real quick to pump it in here to, to even do this demo to show you guys what that looks like because they'll give you two gigabytes for free, but they don't give you any projects. So you need a project to be able to open it inside ah. of uh, DaVinci. So you will, you will pay $5. Yeah, so we're learning new workflows. That's that's welcome to the new world. CJ? In that same menu where you are able to select uh, your cloud settings, it's important also to note that that is where you would go should you want to record to an external drive over the USB-C with the iPhone 15. So when you're going into save, you just go ahead and hit save to files, save clips to files, choose your external drive, and then what you end up getting is just a, a little folder structure just like this where you get your uh, your clip and then the proxy that's created. And uh, I did this a few seconds ago just as a test, and uh, it works flawlessly. So just uh, you remember you're not limited uh, to just the cloud. If you need to hand something off quickly on site and you don't want to have to wait to transfer it from your iPhone, you can still record to that external drive. There you go, Jim. Uh, next question, please. Jim Brooks in New York wants to know, is there a preferred gimbal that you would use when using the Blackmagic camera app on an iPhone, or do you think the internal stabilization is good enough? Jason, start us off. The internal stabilization will never, ever, ever be good enough. Um, I think that the DJI Osmo uh, line is the best. I personally think that it peaked at the four. Is everything after that has introduced this kind of like flimsy um, kind of flexible stuff that that like doesn't really add features uh, that are directly correlative to to stabilization. That's I've had every single one of them, and my favorite is still the OM4. Ooh, I'm excited by that because I own an OM4. TJ Asher, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, my son and I were out hiking over Thanksgiving weekend, and he was hiking with his uh, camera or his iPhone 15 Pro Max held up above his head as we were walking over some pretty rugged terrain. And the video, the internal stabilization, looked like it was shot on a Steadicam. It was really amazing. Yeah, I think the internal uh, stabilization has gotten better and better. I understand, you know, uh, stabilization is always a, does it work in my circumstance for what I need right here? Um, I, 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 my Osmo 4, uh, famously, when we did the rocket launch, I was out standing in the back of uh, a pickup truck holding my Osmo 4, and I was bouncing to heck and back. I was literally, the vertical and the side to side was all a mess. And that little Osmo in my hand ended up creating an incredibly smooth totally usable video of that that really literally shocked me so i know that we've got the best of both worlds i really think the camera itself can help you but you will eventually get outside of the camera the parameters that that camera can fix for you and at that case these small gimbal type devices have just gotten incredibly sophisticated and work amazingly cj and resist the urge if you've got an extreme personality like some people on the panel uh, if you go ahead and you put it in an RS2 or an RS3 and you go a little overkill on the gimbal, it's going to be a little trickier to balance. This phone is so light that if you end up getting a heavier-duty gimbal, the, the balancing is a really, really delicate act. 
Yeah, I've noticed the same thing. Um, the time in the first kind of, well, the first time I used a steady cam, it was like it took me literally 45 minutes to an hour to come anywhere close to having the rig stable enough to get anything out of. And and now it doesn't surprise me at all to spend 15 minutes rebalancing uh, a rig to get the kind of results you're looking for. It, it, the phone, on the other hand, you turn it on and it's just kind of there and it's working and it and it'll get you to a point, not all the way there, but to a point. Let's go to the next question. Mike Potter in Hanover, Germany. Would it be nice if the app would allow us to get a photo? Will it come in the future? I yeah, I, I I'm. I've tried to do that a few times. And in fact, on that same shoot where I was using the gimbal in the back, I occasionally stopped and hit the photo uh, button to do that. The problem is that it doesn't do both simultaneously. Either the sensor is sending out live video or it's stopping and grabbing a full frame, much higher resolution photo. So every time I did that in the middle of something, I would get a pause or some kind of break in the smooth action. I don't think that's ever going to change. I think at, at some point they made it as fast as possible to go from one mode to the other, but you still are going from one mode to the other. Uh, so in the back of my mind, I think uh, if you're shooting the video with 4K and you want a higher resolution photo, you kind of have to stop for a moment and and do that. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that... Um there's a lot of great photo apps out there. This is definitely a video app, you know, like, and, and maybe they'll go into, I don't think Apple, I don't think that Blackmagic's area of strength is necessarily still photography. So look at Halide, look at a couple other, there's a bunch of other pieces of so software that really focus on still photography. And I, the great thing about your phone is that you can jump to Halide and now you have all the possible things you'd want to take photos with. Like, I don't understand some of the crossover, like Blackmagic, Try to go into still photography, I'd be like, oh, this will be hard. Halide is talking about trying to go into video. And I was like, I don't think that that's a, I think you might have, <laughs> you, you might have thrown the ball to where the receiver was three months ago, uh, but I don't know if the receiver's there anymore. So I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Halide. I'm not sure if their, their Kino app is going to necessarily, I don't know what they're going to do to make it different that makes it worth doing, but, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Let's go to the next question. Tony Mobley from Newman, Georgia says, I'm using Michael Forrest's Shoot Pro right now as a primary camera app on an iPhone XS Max. The benefit is control from another iOS device. Is this coming to the Blackmagic camera app? Alex? I think fundamentally we don't know. It seems like an obvious thing to, to add is have one phone pair to the other one. And, you know, I, I think that they put out what they could do stably. Um, but I do think that this is still an advantage. Filmic has this and it's still an advantage that Shoot... Definitely. I think Shoot's got a couple advantages, the remote control, the being able to draw on the screen. So those are a couple of things that Shoot's going to give you that, that you're not going to get with the Blackmagic app currently. And I will also say that the Apple default camera app, I use that on my iPhone a lot. And I use the, a little camera app on my watch. And I all the time am putting my phone on some kind of a gimbal or pole or something and activating either video recording or still shooting from my watch. And in that time, type of near field control of one from the other, it works pretty well. I find myself shooting like that in a lot of event coverage kind of things where I'm out there and I'm just, I want a different thing. So I either toss my phone way up or maybe put it down at the ground and I don't want to kneel down in the mud or something like that. And suddenly I'm on my watch controlling the camera and it's really useful. Next question. Aaron Giancarle from Flagstaff, Arizona asks, how's the audio for this app? Usable or use an external audio device? 
Alex? Well, you have the microphones that come with the, the phone. So, you, you know, so if that's, that's what you're going to use there. But what I will say is that there is um, a lot of control over what type of audio source you want to use. And so instead of one of the problems that you have is that a lot of iPhone apps will say, let me put this, let me connect this real quickly here. Um, a lot of iPhone apps will just automatically grab whatever is quote unquote headphone. You know, like this, you know, are we using this now kind of thing? And if you look at what this does is you have here, you can decide what you want. Right now, I don't have another audio source. But if I, because I'm using USB-C, you know, I can, you know, I obviously I can record, I can decide how I'm going to record that audio format. Um, I can decide, you know, what I, you know, what kind of channeling that I want to do here up to four channels. Um, sample rate, um, the, you know, I can even have how I want to do audio, audio metering. So there's a lot of options here that you don't see in most other um, devices. And so, so this does give you a lot more control than most of the other cameras that are out there, most of the other camera apps that are out there. And so, um, you know, for me, the way I'm approaching this is going to be, I'm building a rig right now to see how far we can take this. You know, I built the first rig. I think I might be the first iPhone rig builder ever <laughs> like you know for for video if you go if you go to my channel on youtube you'll see one built 15 years ago when the first the the, the 3gs came out um and so and i built it like 20 minutes after i took it back from the store so the um so i've thought about this for a while and this we're gonna i'm gonna build a rig out for this um the uh what i will say is that i'm gonna probably put a mix pre in you know so this is gonna have a mix pre mounted to the rig below it. And so then I just have regular XLR ins and I'm just feeding that all into the system. So we'll, I'll let you know how that goes. As we start to build that rig out, this is the beginning of us talking about this. As we start to build the rigs out, we'll start showing them. And I do think there was a watershed moment when they decided to dump the lightning port and go to USB-C to keep all the European folks happy, uh, those regulators. I don't think gonna... they, I just want to make sure, I, I want to underline this. The European regulators had nothing to do with this. Apple had been going to USB-C for years. Like they had, they had moved their computers, they had moved their iPads. What they were doing is getting the EU to slow down. All they were trying to do is get EU to go slower so that they would do it in the, for, in the time frame that they wanted. I, 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 I only want to attack that just a little bit because I don't think Apple, I don't think Apple changed their timeline at all. I think what so what, what people read as the EU forced Apple to go to USB C. I think Apple got the EU to go to their schedule. Like you know, like they're you know, if you look at the schedule of of computers, then the iPads, the the next natural thing was to move the phones over. And I think that they just wanted to do it in a certain uh, a cadence, and they persuaded the EU to and they 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 allow the EU to take credit for it. There's no way. I mean, the, if you look at how long it was delayed, it was delayed to Apple's schedule. <laughs> like, you know, like so, so Apple, but, but if you look at everything else, it was, this was the next obvious thing they had to do. You can't have this phone do what it's doing with lightning. Like it is not, you know, so there like the phones and, and remember these features were not decided when the EU decided this, the features on this phone were probably defined somewhere between three and five years ago. Like you just have to, you know, like we have to understand how hardware gets built at this level. But minimum three years ago, this is long before the EU got close to what it was. Apple knew where they, where the, where the phone needed to be. And so, so I don't think that there's, I just want to make sure we, like I, we talk about this on Mac break a lot. And I think like I'm a little prickly about that because the EU didn't force Apple to do anything. The EU, EU I, was forcing them to open the, 
I, I do think that Apple is having to respond to the the whole app, you know, opening up the app stores and everything else. The EU is getting that. But in the USB-C thing, I think Apple just persuaded the EU to last long enough to, they kept it in courts and they did everything else to last long enough so that they could draw it out. So anyway. Bottom line being, we have a much better port in the 15 going forward than we had before. Yeah. And so hopefully that's going to lead to well, a lot and, more and, external and, capability. And again, this is, the the camera, all the stuff we're talking about in production is not viable without an, a USB-C port. Like nothing, none of the features in this camera, as it comes to a professional camera, would have been at all useful for people if, they, if it was still being funneled through a, a lightning connector. Jason, you had thoughts? Um, yeah, I just wanted to add, as far as audio is concerned, it's really nice that it gives you the option of capturing LPCM um, ACC or sorry AAC um, that's really handy what do you so um, linear is it linear pulse code modulation versus AAC which is the the other thing uh, so it lets you capture raw without wasting you know the the required so for example ProRes capture right and I believe I'm, I'm trying it right now just to make dead sure I'm not misspeaking but if I go into ProRes for, let's see, let's just go with ProRes full, right? Like ProRes 422HQ, I can still go into audio and the audio will allow me to record in, let me see, I'm checking it, and not waste the space. That's right, I can do IEEE float, AAC, or linear PCM. So it, it makes for a smaller, slightly smaller file. It's still going to be giant, but slightly smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Less giant than would be otherwise. Well, again, and this is what we're talking about. For those of you who are technologists who really want to dive in, these are the kind of choices that these new tools allows you to make as opposed to hit the record button and we're going to give you what we want to give you. Let's go to the next question. Kevin Graham from Rochester, New York. Can you upload media clips saved on your phone to the cloud or export it to an external drive if you have not set up the cloud path? CJ. So if you haven't set up Blackmagic Cloud, you can still choose to save it to another folder that syncs to a cloud service via the Files app or to an external drive. Uh, so what you're want, going to want to do is in your, uh, whoops, not that one, <laughs> um, in your Blackmagic Camera app, you'll go here to Media, and then you'll hit Save Clips 2. When you hit Save Clips 2, then you're going to hit Files, and then after you're in Files, you can go choose either a different cloud service if you want to leave it up to the Files app to sync, or in this case, I'm going to click on this SSD, say Blackmagic Camera Test, and then hit Open in the upper right. And now if I go back to my camera settings, you can see in the bottom for my store, for my uh, storage media, it says, hey, you've got you know 12 hours of 422HQ uh, ready to go. So that's how you want to do it. Again, go into Settings, Media, and then choose in the Files app where you'd like that to go. And to wherever it, that hard drive could theoretically, could it be network attached storage and have a watch folder on it to send it somewhere else? Or would that be too complicated a file? I app? really wouldn't go there directly in the app. Um, no. Theoretically, yes. In the files app on, 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 um, on iOS, you can add a remote drive destination. It's much easier, for example, through the Synology Drive app. But yes, it is theoretically possible. So there's people out there who will be exploring that. You can guarantee it right now. Let's go to the next question. 
Rob Harris in St. Paul, Minnesota asks, any recommendation for a small USB-C dock? I'm running to an external drive using an iPhone 15 Pro Max, but that eliminates the use of USB-C mics. You know, it's been interesting to me. Uh, I've been using OWC uh, for a long time, and most of them are desktop dops. But I did try, because I've been on the road a little bit lately, uh, looking at some of their bus-powered laptop docks, and I've been kind of impressed. They don't do everything the big docks do, but they certainly make it easier than I expected. Uh, Jason, what's your experience been? I love the Express dock. It's 50 bucks. It saves you $200 in dongle hell, and that's only on a desktop. You can plug the same thing into um, into an iPhone, and there are I'm sure that there are use cases where it requires that plug-in and plug-through power, but very rarely, I, I can't imagine, and I have yet to run into one, where if you plug one thing in, I just need Ethernet through my iPhone, I just need HDMI through my iPhone, I don't believe it requires any plug-through power. Hmm. Alex? Of course, I'm going the other way, which is that I'm defining a V-mount uh, battery that's b that will power both the hub as well as the camera, as well as being able. So I have, you know, so I, I don't have, I'm still working on the definition, but we'll show these as they start to get built out. I'm going to, by the end of December, I should have a pretty built out film rig that's built around the iPhone and, um, and I'll do like a little tour of it or whatever. But the, the, um, but this one's a, it's a, you know, this will be a V-mount. Uh, battery and that battery then will go out to the hub and a lot of them like the um the small rig 99 has a usb-c so i can use a usb-c to the hub um to to if i if i want to deliver power that way but that's delivering power back to the camera back to the phone as well as you know allowing it to have because uh, i want ethernet hdmi you know all those you know and a usb-c for um, audio input so on and so forth so so yeah we're working on that work in progress next question Oh, Jason. Kadoki. I already hit the yeah, next question. Sorry. <laughs> Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. Alex, when you showed the audio in, was it limited to four channels because of the app or your interface? Having 12-channel USB in and out would be awesome. Alex. I, 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 I haven't tested that yet, so I'll let you know as we go a little bit further. I think it's probably limited to four channels, just the way it's set up to record right now. Um, I don't think that there's any reason why I couldn't expand it, but typically what I would do is is put sync channels in there. I do believe it supports timecode. Um, so you could put timecode down one of those channels to, to uh, you know, to apply that. But I, as you start to move into film, you start moving into, into a, um, a two-system process, you know, so you're going to have your audio running in one place and your video running in another place. You might have a safety, as soon as you get serious about it, you're going to have safety audio and timecode going into the camera, but you're not planning to use all 12 channels. That's what your recorder's for. You record that and then you resync that audio and the video later. So I think that that's, that's how I would approach that. If I started talking about more than a couple channels, four channels is super useful. More than four channels, I'm kind of like, well, I'm going to use a two-system two uh, process at this point. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, could you see Blackmagic Designs adding a network control API to the app? OSC, for example. Uh, oh, that would be interesting. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like all this stuff is, is on i don't know if they'll do osc but then i the, the idea of them having an api that's going to interact with the phone and be able to set settings and so on and so forth like they do with everything else they make um it seems unlikely that they wouldn't allow you to have some of those interfaces i think that they're i think they're just happy to get the phone out now but i, I what i was amazed by by what what black magic did was not so much 
that it was, you know, they built a camera app that it was so developed knowing that this is version one. And, and, you know, over the next year, I expect to see a pretty high velocity of updates where we get the ability to interact with the switchers better, uh, an API that we can call to, um, those types of things. I would be really surprised if we don't see um, Blackmagic continue to move down this path. It's a pretty incredible, because a lot of people have been asking on some of the other stuff that I've been talking on is, so what's the business model? Like they're giving this away. Well, the <laughs> Blackmagic Cloud for one. Um, also, this just, it's a it's an incredible first step into the Blackmagic ecosystem. You know, so I think you're going to see more and more tying in with the metadata and everything else with Resolve. You're going to see, you know, and the, the once you get into an ecosystem, it's really hard to get people out of it. So I think that's that's part of the process. Plus, with their switchers, how long is it going to be before there's all sorts of mobile operating rigs where you have one of the little Blackmagic ATEM switchers and three or four iPhones and you're doing multicam in the field with a very low footprint, low stress uh, rig? And for a lot of things that just there, there was no way to pencil out, you know, a, a school concert or stuff like that, people will be able to do uh, explore and those will probably be the next generation's uh, television switchers and things like that. So uh, people learning on these simple tools will end up advancing in their careers over time. Let's get to the next question. Elton Christensen from New York City, New York asks, when using the Blackmagic camera app, what brightness level do you set your iPhone to while using the app? Jason, what do you think? Um, well, if you're constrained for battery power, the answer is um, as low as possible because on this uh, on the app itself, you have meters. Like you, you, you can actually look at the scopes and set your exposure without having to try to judge exposure in in harsh lighting conditions. There you go, Alex. When I'm capturing with the phone, I turn it up all the way. <laughs> like you know, like so. That's, I start with a phone. I start with a, a battery that's totally. I, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I haven't had to shoot long, long, long shots yet. But I, I tend that the mon the monitor. Uh, just as a note, by the way, I've done a lot of testing in this area. Your monitor brightness is not the thing that affects your battery. Your cellular connection affects your battery. You want your ba you want your phone to last for a long time. Go to airplane mode, like or go to or just turn off your cellular. It's it's your cellular connection um, that is a nine. So what happens is, especially if you don't have a lot of good a good connection, your cellular is looking for it and it's emitting a lot. By the way, it's emitting a lot of RF. Um, um, but, but it is burning up that battery. I have enough, my iPhone 14, uh, doesn't have a modem anymore because I moved it over to the 15. It lasts for days, three, four days, five days. Like it, it just lasts forever without that modem. That's useful. Thank you, yeah. Alex. Uh, Jason. Alex is a hundred percent right. Um, the, the cellular is always going to use more power than, um, than the screen, but, Ideally, um, yeah, but I mean, say, they both not use more power than the screen. Not more, oh, yeah. more power than the screen. It uses more power than everything else on the phone combined. Like it is, it is the wow. power beast. That I mean, it is. It is a, when you when you actually do the when you actually test it and leave th turn things on and off. It's amazing. Like yeah, what it, background what it there. background app refresh and network refresh yeah. just kills it. Yeah, interesting. Next question. Juan C. Robles in Mexico City, Mexico. On an iPad, the record audio as setting, I'm seeing a four-channel mode. 
Interesting. So uh, there's always been a lot of audio pathways that sometimes I never enable. Alex, have you played with? Yeah. This? So so I think that that'll be what'll be interesting to see what happens when we put when we plug in something like a mix pre, which I haven't done yet. So I'm working on building the rig that would allow me to do that. And so yeah. the mix pre will be attached to the bottom of the phone. <laughs> so so we'll uh, we'll see how that how that turns out. Yeah, if you can record video in four separate tracks of audio, that's going to be fabulous for panel discussions and things like that. A lot of sources where you you need more than one or two audio inputs. Jason? Um, yeah, it's not just the iPad. Um, you can do the same thing on, on the iPhone 15. Record audio as dual mono, four channels, or, or mono, just straight away. Nice. Guy? Yeah, I'm waiting for him to add the little option to accept UVC camera inputs, and now you just plug the ATEM switcher right in and That'll be really cool. So incredible. Be <laughs> uh, the, the world's changing. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, has anyone tried this with external lenses like the Moment lenses? Well, I, a lot of us have used the Moment lenses. They're really good. Uh, I don't use them all the time just because I think they're a little unwieldy, but they make quality things, Alex. Yeah, I'll be testing them next week. So I'm going to get, I'm get, I have a couple of moments on the way right now and, and I'm putting it, I'm going to use the small rig the one that fits on the phone. I said I had, I'm getting both the bigger one and the smaller one. They have the, the same bayonet that you know the small rig will should take the moment lenses. We're going to find out, um, and so it's a pretty simple um, connection, but it should take it. Here's why you want to think about taking using those lenses. The highest quality, the 24 millimeter one quote unquote one X, is the highest quality sensor that's on the camera. It is not the same. The other lenses are not the same sensor. So when you go to 2x or 5x or 0.5x, those are not the same uh, quality as 1x. And so as you get into quote unquote filmmaking, you know, or iPhoneography or whatever, you're going to spend a lot of energy focused on that single lens that that this, the 1x sensor and adding lenses to it to get the most out of the camera. It has been such an exciting discussion today. Thank you all very much for participating. Don't forget, tomorrow streaming to multiple locations. Alex will be in the host chair, and he's going to talk about how Office Hours is going to begin streaming to more than one YouTube channel and eventually more than one platform. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who's involved in this show, to the panelists for showing up and donating their time to answer questions every day. So appreciative of that. This show wouldn't be possible without them, nor would it be possible without those of you who are watching to our many, many producers out there who add these questions into the queue every day. We really appreciate you. And of course, the back-end crew is unbelievable in the amount of effort they put in every day to make this possible, and we really appreciate that. Uh, we will be back to see you tomorrow. Thank you. Totally just plugged my iPhone into the ridiculously large Thunderbolt Go dock, and it worked seamlessly and perfectly with Thunderbolt 3. Now that we've tweaked all of our Blackmagic settings, don't forget to export the preset so you can save it for next time and flash it onto another phone. Powerful. Thanks for your patience today, everybody. Sorry about the little mishaps there.
hope 